0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I would like to congratulate Sarah Lee, curator here at the Royal Academy and the Royal Academy, for presenting this very thoughtful and timely exhibition of Joseph Cornell's work. It's been a real pleasure to be involved in the project uh, as an advisor. So this is an image of Joseph Cornell in 1939. And Cornell was absolutely fascinated with how the mind and the imagination work and overlap like an echo chamber. And in turn, we are often fascinated by how his mind and imagination worked. Technically, we can say that he didn't paint, sculpt, make prints, take photographs, Uh, But in actuality, he used all of these techniques to make his boxes, collages, films, and graphic designs. We can also say that Cornell excelled at creating unexpected combinations that evoke metaphors and stories and emotions. Tonight, my principal goal is this, as Sarah called it out. I'd like to introduce how some aspects of recent studies in neuroscience and creativity can contribute to thinking about Cornell. But I do have to say that I'm a layperson. I'm not a shrink. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm an art historian who's gotten very uh, interested in these kinds of concepts. But before I talk about those recent neuroscientific studies, I do need to provide you with some some background on Cornell's life and work in order to do what I'd like to accomplish. So, uh, a little bit of biography. Cornell was born in Nyack, New York, up the Hudson River uh, in 1903. He died in Flushing, New York, just outside of Manhattan, in 1972. He came from a very close and acculturated family, and I think this photograph Of him around 1915 with his family gives you that kind of sense. That's Cornell standing at the right of the photograph, complete with his wing collar. In 1917, however, his father passed away and that really did change the status and the financial circumstances of the family. And despite that, with the help of a family friend, Cornell went to the Phillips Academy, the first private school established in America. Uh, The Phillips Academy is in uh, Massachusetts, and he was a science major. He was also an absolutely awful student, so he did not graduate even though he attended the full four years. He went back to New York to Flushing and in point of fact, at the age of 19, with no aspirations or expectations of going to college, he fully accepted his responsibility to take care of his family. At that time, his widowed mother his two sisters, as well as his brother Robert, who you see seated on his mother's lap in this photograph. Uh, Robert suffered from cerebral palsy and was physically, but not mentally, incapacitated for all of his adult life. So in order to support his family, Cornell began to take a series of poorly paying and menial kinds of jobs during uh, the Depression era in the 1920s, and in his course of life, and this is one of the principal reasons why this show is so important to to be taking place in Europe, Cornell very seldom traveled as an adult. So he had a basic life circuit on a daily basis between Flushing and Manhattan, Manhattan and Flushing. He um, was so ill-suited to these um, menial jobs that he often described himself as having rather serious stomach ailments. And in 1925, he converted to Christian science, uh, which he claimed really helped him uh, find balance in his life. But more importantly, as he was in Manhattan, part of what he was doing as a traveling salesman in the city was, in point of fact, canvassing the many opportunities that the city of New York offered at that time. And that really was his education in life and culture. And he described it as the exploring that became creative. So he was constantly going to films, to ballets, to the public libraries, to read, to uh, theater performances, performances, to antique stores, print stores, along uh, a real uh, important corridor in New York at that time, second and third avenues. And he was doing this at a point in time when New York was really coming into its own. It was at this crossroads between the old and the new in becoming a modern capital of culture. Now this is one photograph of Cornell's basement studio from the 1960s toward the end of his life, and in point of fact what you see here actually is very much the character of many parts of his entire small house on Utopia Parkway in Flushing. It was filled not just with his artwork and the domestic circumstances of his family, but tens of thousands of different kinds of items that he collected over time. There were, at the time of his death, approximately 3,000 books, hundreds and hundreds of record albums. You see in this, what looks to be kind of a messy arrangement, folders and folders that contained cut-out images and his diaries, many, many cartons um, of filled with physical objects that he described as flotsam and jetsam and frequently they were indeed fragments and pieces of things, or they were multiple examples of things that he gathered because he was fond of them. He also called this kind of a shelf arrangement his spare parts department. He could reach into a carton, and if he had something prepared, then instead of stopping to finish and sand something, off he would go in order to use that sort of thing in his work. As you can tell from this, uh, you know, maybe chaotic order, he was very oriented towards classifying and archiving. And so, as you read, if you can, some of the inscriptions on the boxes, there's some very ordinary things that he collected things like watch parts and cordial glasses. Or there's some unexpected headings, references to Dürer, for example, or concepts like the nostalgia of the sea. So, in point of fact, this image does suggest that he. Ha- He definitely had a system uh, in mind. Now, those physical materials are actually the expression of his encyclopedic interests. And this is a calligram that he created for a publication in January 1943. And a calligram is a poem in which the typeface creates this visual image of the tower. If you were to read the hundreds of words that he actually managed to cram into this design, you'd come across references like balloons, mountains of the moon, photography, Paris, Vermeer, uh, Mozart, and so on. If we really inventoried all of those hundreds of words, they would clearly cut across and combine the arts, humanities, and sciences. And we could then parse each of these bubbles. History, for example, could be about contemporary history, ancient history, the Renaissance history, for example. But in point of fact, if we if we gather all those bubbles up, Basically, what he was doing was exploring culture, creativity, humanity, and spirituality. And in large measure, this was because his intent as he evolved as an artist, was to really discover and understand himself to communicate uh, with us as viewers and fellow humanitarians, as well as this deep, deep intent and desire that he had to share the, the beauty and the value of creativity with others. He often said that making people feel at home with the aesthetic was his goal, and he defined the aesthetic as the beautiful and the spiritual in the everyday. So while we might look at some of Cornell's works and think they're very precious, he's very oriented towards touching us um, in a very particular and helpful kind of way. So a little bit about the evolution of his career. Um, as art historians and curators, uh, we're kind of famous for our desire to pigeonhole pe- people, to place an artist in relation to influences or a lineage. And Cornel's been a little elusive in that regard, but frequently what people uh, in my business tend to associate with him, him with initially is indeed uh, the evolution of surrealism. I should say that his career officially began in 19. 1931. That was the first year in which he began exhibiting in New York. On the left is a collage by Max Ernst from the late 1920s, and on the right is an early 1930s example by Cornell. And obviously, these two men in making collages shared an affinity for using 19th century black and white engravings and unusual combinations of images. And Cornell certainly was aware of and admired uh, Max Ernst, but in point of fact, we also need to indicate that he was aware of other pictorial traditions, traditions in print especially, that disrupted realistic representation. And he was as much open to the high and the fine expression of imagery as he was um, to popular sources. And so he was very drawn and very aware of the collage traditions of the Victorian era, as well as the scrapbooks and the puzzle pictures that uh, that the Victorians were so fond of. And this is an example of a puzzle picture from his collection. Once we get to the box format, uh, again, people can point uh, or would like to point to surrealism as his principal uh, source of impetus. And obviously, when we look at Salvador Dali's painting on the left, Illumined Pleasures from 1929 and Cornell's 1933 box uh, devoted to Mademoiselle Ferretti and the box is upstairs in the show, you're looking at two people who are obviously dealing with boxed contained imagery of dreamlike, unreal, fantastical circumstances. But again, Cornell had awareness of other traditions, uh, much earlier traditions in point of fact. So this is an illustration from some of his source materials of a painting um, by a 17th century German. And in the painting, you get this whole sense of trying to fool the eye in a still life arrangement in this kind of cabinet of curiosities tradition. And I think it's also worth thinking about that the box has tremendous resonance in human history. For us, a box is functional because it preserves and presents things that we uh, value. And a box is also decorative because it allows us to individualize and make something special by containing it. There is a little bit of the chicken and the egg thing going on in Cornell's work. Everybody asked me, so like, what was the first box? What was the first collage? Which did he do first, the, a box or a collage? And um, the at this point, based on you know things that I've uncovered, I truly believe that he was trying to make boxes as of the late 1930s. On the screen, however, at the top is a 1931 collage, and it is his first known dated work. And again, here is his use of black and white engravings. He did not draw, but clearly in using this kind of uh, imagery, he had a deep interest in representational imagery from books and magazines and prints. And all of those things have a very intimate scale. You can hold a book, you can hold a print, you can look at it as you handle it. And I do begin to think of those two-dimensional resources for him as another version of personal containers. On the bottom of the image is a work uh, similar examples in the show, and this is called Jouette Surrealiste, or a Surrealist Toy, from 1932. And basically, it's a found Thaumatrope, which was an optical toy, and he's taken the discs and simply collaged various um, surfaces with different images. And it was an optical toy that actually led to the evolution of the notion of the moving picture um, or uh, film, and you can see one demonstrated up in the exhibition. But these kinds of works, when he started showing them in the early 1930s, earned him the moniker of making toys for adults. And this was a moniker that haunted him, and even in some respects still haunts him today throughout his career because it it suggested that they were simpler, um, more sentimental, um, not serious, high art. Uh, But nonetheless, despite that um, designation oftentimes in the press, throughout his career, I do want to make clear that Cornell was always exhibiting his work, selling his work, being collected, and having exhibitions as of that debut in 1931. And there weren't that many artists of his generation who could Actually make that claim. But what we really identify Cornell with is the box form. And as I go now through these next examples I'm going to move from the early to the later examples uh, very quickly and try to draw out some of the principal themes as well. This is a soap bubble set from 1936 And it's a found container, which means he didn't make it. And you're gonna have to believe me that on either side uh, wall is a set of handles so that you could actually carry the box. And in his arrangement of its elements, we begin to feel like we might be looking into the studio or the mind of the imagination as a laboratory because of the scientific connotations. And so we can begin to think about experimentation and exploration. That image of the moon we could take as a symbol of the universe and that perhaps would help us begin to think about our place in the natural and the celestial and the spiritual world. And as he's trying to find his way in making boxes, just as the soap bubble sets um, represent these kinds of miniature worlds and theaters or vignettes that he's developing. Uh, he also gravitated towards using found antique chests. So, while in the show, you'll see that most of Cornell's boxes are horizontal or vertical and frequently incorporate glass panes. Examples like this box, also in the show, that's devoted to Cleo de Maroud, um, a an early 20th century French actress, the box is from the 1940s. And it's a small chest that he's altered. It was actually a traveling apothecary box. And in point of fact, you can tell from that use that it was intended to be manipulated or carried and that you were to interact with it as you would take the bottles in or out. What he substituted for the pharmaceutical contents were natural specimens. And so you begin to get the sense that with that reference to Egypt, that there might be something of a scientific expedition going on. And so this leads us to contemplate that Cornell really saw art and science as complementary ways to understand the world. Art as experimental and science as creative. The um, other element of this box is really about homage and portraiture, although in a very abstract and symbolic way. Uh, because the box dedicated to this French ballerina, Cleo de Meroud, her middle name was Cleopatra. And in some respects, by associating her with the Queen of Egypt, he's creating for the ballerina a sense of her exotic past. And we begin to perhaps look at this as a miniature museum that is dedicated to an individual. By 1940, he was actually making his own boxes um, after learning some basic woodworking and figuring out that he could scavenge wood from the neighborhood. And the boxes, like this Medici slot machine from 1942, begin to take on a very strong sense of staging and architecture and theater. So we begin to see uh, suggestions of windows and doors and these images of objects and objects in these boxes do begin to suggest stories. So with the Medici reference, um, he's alluding to culture, high culture and history in Europe, as well as the tradition of humanism and high accomplishment that's associated with the Renaissance. But this box was made in 1942, at the height of World War II. And and while Cornell was not politically active for the most part, he had an incredibly strong moral compass, and so this box, for him, was a real comment on the destruction of culture and the inhumanity that World War II uh, represented. The slot machine reference is really um, alluding to games and the slot machines, whether of gambling or just fortune-telling variety. And so while it's suggesting play because of the notion of machine and children, um, it is also introducing the notion of chance as unpredictability. And in this combination of things, of the high and the popular, you begin to get a sense of democracy in his images and ideas, as well as a sense of the associative poetry and mystery that we all still try to understand. In the late 1940s, his boxes, like this aviary from late, from around 1949, become very streamlined and architectural. And the aviaries really allude to his love of architecture and. Um, the sort of caged environments, if you will, man-made environments, things like pet stores where he saw flurries of color with birds flying around, as well as his love of natural habitats. The Sand Fountain, from about 1955 on the right, um, if you turn it upside down, think of a sand timer or an hourglass with the sand running through, and it really alludes to his fascination with time, measures, phases, patterns, as well as the passing and unfolding of time in a non-linear and academic fashion. With this box on the left, Andromeda Grand Hotel de l'Observatoire from 1954. Uh, we begin to wonder, well, maybe he thinks he's an armchair voyager, and it's about voyaging metaphorically to hotels and, and places that he never was going to get to physically. Uh, it's also, I think, you know, giving the suggestion of a room with a view to contemplate things like nature's theater, the skies, the heavens, uh, and, the, and the geographies that that represents. In creating works like this, these ideas also then translated into his later uh, phase of collage that began around 1953. So, in addition to making soap bubbles at sand fountains, hotels, etc., all of these things as series uh, refer to his concept of possibilities and variance. It's almost like he had multiple chess games going on simultaneously across media and across decades. So this collage, called Andromeda from 1956, is an example of how this idea of the heavens and nature translate into this later phase of collage that now is almost very technicolor in its use of images from uh, popular magazines of his time. This collage, Pascal's Triangle from 1965, indicates that as in the boxes that moved from the dense to the more streamlined as he progressed, in the collages of the later period, there's also this progression from the pictorial to the abstract. As well as, because you're looking at the front and back now of this collage, and you can do so up in the show, you get the sense that the work is really meant to be 360 degrees, that it's holistic, and that it's very much, whether it's a collage or a box, to be seen in the round. So making sense of what Cornell created from his eclectic interdisciplinary resources and ideas is no small challenge. Basically, in some respects, the puzzle is about mm, self-taught artist, but really what an incredibly sophisticated intelligence uh, we're uh, encountering. Despite recent advances in understanding creativity, I think it's worth pointing out that we still tend to default to the Western society's 200-year-old model of what an artist is. A unique vision conceived and expressed by an inspired, often solitary, sometimes troubled, individual who rejects convention. From Marcel Duchamp and Salvador Dali to Jackson Pollock and Andy Warhol, even during Cornell's time, this romantic interpretation of the artist was very much in vogue, and it definitely colored the perception of Cornell then and even now, as a lonely eccentric endowed with compelling but mysterious associative powers. And I think when you look at this image of Cornell in an exhibition of his work in 1939, you get that sense of uh, mystery for sure. Now similarly, this image from around 1900 speaks to the sense of mystery that has surrounded the study of the mind and the brain uh, for centuries. And the um, image actually refers to the 18th and 19th century tradition of phrenology, which was basically pseudoscience, using measurements of the head and the human skull, basically, to try to locate and assess character thoughts and emotions. Apparently, the concept was that the bigger your head, surely the bigger and the better your brain was. (laughs) Now, There is still, of course, an incredible amount of mystery that surrounds how, how we operate, how we think, why we think, but there have been incredibly rapid advances in no small measure due to really what technology has made possible in imaging the brain. And so I'd just now like to go into some of the implications that have occurred to me for thinking about Cornell in this regard. There is this long-standing belief that um, our brain brain definitely has two hemispheres. But the long-standing belief is that the left hemisphere, the side of the brain, is all about analysis and logic. And that the right side of the brain is all about creativity and intuition. However, cognitive neuroscientists have recently confirmed that every normal human brain encompasses the mental structures and processes that are the basis of creativity, which means that it is not a special mental process. Creativity involves a wide range of cognitive abilities and is distributed throughout the brain rather than centered in a specific locale. Other studies point to the likelihood the creative people have more communication, higher communication between the brain's left and right hemispheres. Each cognitive ability that creativity encompasses is constantly evolving as it simultaneously engages many, many parts of the brain over successive moments in time. Abilities associated with different kinds of creativity occur in different parts of the brain. And recent research also suggests that these abilities occur in different locations in the brain depending on whether someone is trained or untrained. In other words, the conscious mind, right now, we're doing it. We're organizing and recombining many insights over long periods of effort. One cognitive neuroscientist's description of the brain as a category buster is a dramatic way of stating that combining concepts is a basic human cognitive ability. Many cognitive psychologists also consider conceptual combination and metaphor the most productive mental process for studies of creativity right now because mapping information or features from one concept to another supports generating new ideas. Similarly, new studies also are emphasizing how creativity involves remote associations, because bringing together unusual parts or making unique combinations increases the likelihood of creating an image that is inventive. So if we think about the brain as a network of intersections, that begins to suggest some contexts for creativity. And I just love the title of this book, The Medici Effect, uh, in part because for me, it just immediately resonates with Cornell. But the the author chose the phrase Medici Effect because he's referring to the remarkable burst of creativity in 15th century Italy. And the book's premise is simple. When you step into the intersection of fields, disciplines, or cultures, you can combine existing concepts to dramatically increase the opportunities for unusual combinations, as well as to generate a greater chance of innovation. Cornell himself regularly alluded to the dynamics of association, morphing, and intersecting as possibilities, ramifications, fleeting impressions, variance, and cross-currents, and so on. The piecing and integrating principles of collage and assemblage in his serial production of boxes and collages express these dynamics in physical form. So this is an example of recent neuroimaging, and I love this image of the glow of memory. I bring up memory in relation to the brain in Cornell, largely because he is so associated with memory as nostalgia and that this has brought into the discussion of his work oftentimes a rather negative connotation of just being fixated on the past and and being sentimental. But we now know that memory is a very active form of learning. Memory is actually considered a constellation of processes and systems that connect and activate different parts of the brain. So this implies the existence of different types of memory, which is what the bottom image is showing us, that affect how we retain and retrieve information, and how we form skills, habits, and concepts. This means, then, it gives us the capacity, it improves our capacity to to integrate our intellectual and emotional lives. In its most basic, scientific sense, memory facilitates the brain's desire to impose order on our environment. And in its broadest cognitive sense, memory fuels continual learning. It enables us to resolve and reevaluate past experience in order to interpret current situations and to modify what we will actually do in the future. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through every little detail in this slide, but um, it's obviously here for a reason. Uh, Because in talking about memory, it does bring us to the larger topic of learning or cognition. And we can define learning and cognition as the mental action of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, memory, and the senses. There have been many, many, almost too many theories and studies and models to explain learning, especially since the 1970s, and they have all had rather dramatic effects on how we plan our educational systems today. On the screen, these two examples are simply there as examples, rather than going through them in detail, in terms of some of these models, and studies, and and different learning styles. But for our purposes, in thinking about Cornell, my important point is that each of us develops our preferences for how to receive information. And yet, each of us can also adapt. Because our brain can and does actually change in response, and rapidly changes in response, to experiences, environmental influences, and different learning challenges, and opportunities. So, um, this brings me to the matter of describing Cornell as self-taught. And today, to describe someone like him as self-taught actually comes with some uncomfortable baggage, especially in terms of assessing achievement, because we so value formalized and higher education. And the term self-taught has become the preferred designation for artists previously described as primitive and naive. So yes, we need to acknowledge that Cornell was self-taught because he did not attend college or go to art school but let's consider just a tiny bit of history as we look at Frank Mayer's 1858 painting that he entitled Independence. In 1832, the English traveler Mrs. Trollope wrote Domestic Manners of the Americans, and she remarked on, quote, the frequency with which I heard this phrase of self-taught used, not as an apology, but as positive praise. She reported that her American traveling companion responded, well, madam, can there be higher praise? Is it not attributing genius to the author? And what is teaching compared to that? Mrs. Trollope had detected an attitude that became and remains synonymous with a nation's efforts to assert its identity as unique, different, and better, giving rise to the importance associated with individualism in my country. This formed the basis of the long-standing American equation of creativity with innovation and breaking conventions. The self-made individual, unique in talent and experiences, became the epitome of this thinking. But by the time Cornell had arrived on the scene in the 1930s, something had happened because uh, formalized higher education had become the symbol of an individual's and a country's sophistication and power, and that former pride and being self-taught had long ago gone out the window. Now, in making this transition, the lessons of other histories were ignored because, let's face it, creative people have apprenticed or educated themselves informally, but with deliberate intent for centuries. And so here are three famous uh, British examples. William Blake, George Bernard Shaw, and David Bowie. The polymath is often the cousin of the autodidact. Uh, Another phrase sounds much more formal in terms of describing someone as self-taught. A polymath can be defined as a person whose expertise spans a significant number of different subject areas. This type of person is known to draw on complex bodies of knowledge to solve specific problems. And the term polymath is often used to describe great thinkers of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment who excelled at several different fields in science and the arts. So here we have examples, key examples, Da Vinci, Galileo, and Benjamin Franklin. But today, the term polymath is a bit more generalized and is instead often applied to gifted people who seek to develop abilities in many different areas, whether intellectual, artistic, social, and even physical. So the point of considering Cornell as an autodidact and a polymath is about how we acquire and process knowledge and understanding and about how creativity and learning are processes that unfold over our lifetime. To be autodidactic is actually to be self-reliant and confident, expressed as a preference for self-education rather than standardized educational methods. And an autodidact who wants more than learning uh, for only learning's sake, also requires a high degree of self-discipline and reflective capability. One psychiatrist uh, has done uh, long-term studies and has found that these studies suggest that creative people are often autodidacts. The consistency and ease with which Cornell drew from diverse, complex bodies of knowledge also suggest the polymath's highly developed capacity to create associations from broad and divergent sources. Again, this same psychiatrist's long-term studies point to a relationship between creativity and polymaths. Ultimately, the concept of lifelong learning provides the most inclusive context for appreciating Cornell's expansive, self-directed pursuit and interpretation of knowledge. Because the idea of lifelong learning acknowledges that learning occurs in a range of situations rather than being confined to childhood or to the classroom and is crucial to how an individual develops personally as well as professionally. This is a rare image from 1947 of Cornell making a work. It's actually the start of a soap bubble set. And I think because of his associations with um, poetry and associative um, kinds of activities, the work is uh, often, I think, described primarily as very cerebral. But it's really fruitful to think of the work and him as a highly tactile kind of experience. Because the tactility represents a very special aspect of how Cornell learned and created his work. And it's in part because of the range of textures he was dealing with paper, paper, paper. You know, he handled books, prints, magazines, photographs, postcards, newspapers, and the simple brown paper bag. He had lots of brown paper bags that he put notes on. And this dovecote, from around 1953, is a compendium of many of the materials he handled. Wood, paint, plaster, glass, stone, plastic, and rubber. It's the physical charge of the objects that you can get from the materials as well as the works that he made. Now, I suspect that many of us think that we see only with our eyes and that similarly, sight is often considered our most intellectual sense. However, I do want to draw our attention to the sense of touch and its significance for Cornell. Both of these illustrations, whether you believe in reflexology and its benefits or not, convey how touch connects us completely, our skin, our organs, our muscles, our nerves, and Our sense of touch is one of our most important tools of perception because it is exploratory and has the unique ability, unlike any of our other senses, to encode and decipher many physical properties simultaneously. We do this most efficiently when we envelop and manipulate an object with our whole hand, which facilitates integrating information across our fingers. The more often someone experiences a type of touch, the better that person's brain becomes at interpreting this information because new, more complex neural pathways and communication develop and are reinforced. So, we see not just with our eyes, but also with our hands. Many of our everyday interactions with the world involve coordinated visual, haptic, tactile perceptions. By looking at and handling an object or material, we access a larger, richer pool of information and insights. We also strengthen our ability to create memories and long-term knowledge of what an object is, how it operates, or how to make it. Our eyes have a single viewpoint, so visual exploration can detect and unify details for us but it does not provide an encompassing mechanism for gauging shape at all. Because our hands have multiple touch points, the fingers and the palm collaborate as a three-dimensional shape gauge. I just love that concept. Spatial visualization is necessary for creating three-dimensional objects, read sculpture or art, and architecture. And it is an ability that varies depending on how individuals like Cornell can combine visual and haptic cues. So in this context, the sense of touch and the act of making provided important ongoing learning experiences for Cornell. These activities spurred, literally, his understanding of how to materialize and master the aesthetic fundamentals of things like rhythm, design, balance, and proportion in two and three dimensions. And they also honed his ability to create elements such as texture and surface. So you've heard that phrase exploring that became creative. Um, You could also say that his collecting became creative because collecting was also a key way of learning and thinking for Cornell. Whether an expression of the past, the present, or the future, collecting is a creative act in and of itself. An invention of a contextual scenario of the personal and the independent with the object and the collector as the principal characters. A fundamental definition of an object identifies it as anything that inspires or is the subject of our passion. A collector is passionate about the assembled or sought-after objects for several reasons. First, They are singular because a particular person desires and possesses them. These objects are equivalent in a collection because they all contribute to the collector's experience. They are flexible and they are multivalent because they acquire new and highly subjective, even abstract meanings as the collector personally moves objects from one context into the context of the assembled. A collector seldom begins the act of collecting with the expectation of closure. The thrill of that hunt for the missing object is far more powerful than the need to finish or complete. The process of gathering like objects is not just about classification, but also about creating, repeating, and varying sets, which imparts a sense of the serial and indefinite to the pursuit of possibilities. As one commentator has observed, to play with series is to play with the fire of infinity, a thought that for me resonates with Cornell's collecting habits, but also with his works, usually conceived as as members of a series or family united by a reference, image, or format. And so what you see on the screen are four variants of his slot machine series and families. Here's Cornell uh, in 1970, literally in the midst um, of an exhibition of his work, as well as reflections of his work. For me, this image suggests that a collection is a metaphorical integration of an object and person. And in reframing objects, the collector engages in self-fashioning and assimilation as the art of invention. But I think it's important also to point out that Cornell did not just collect physical objects. He was also preoccupied with people, real and imaginary, historical and contemporary, as the occupants of another major avenue of his collecting activities. He was especially attracted to people he described as those who were truly great, and they fell into two categories. People who deepened his understanding of humanity, and people who reflected aspects of the challenges he associated with his creativity. In his effort to understand and to communicate to others his sense of humanity, beauty, and spirituality, he sought out and studied three recurring types who are illustrated in this um, image. First up is The Anonymous on the left. Uh, Cornell gathered impressions of people from countless hours of walking in New York, on the streets, riding in the subways and trains. And he was always scanning what he called faces seen but once. He considered faces in real life and in images, especially those of women and children, a mirror of mind and soul, past, present, and future. The second subset is what I call the suffering. People who displayed vulnerability and resilience, that combination, in the face of adversity struck deep emotional chords in Cornell. Orphans, the elderly, humble workers, and those with physical challenges all exemplified the living grace, a quality that he aspired to as a devout Christian scientist. Above all, his younger brother, Robert, and you'll remember that picture at the very beginning, was Cornell's hero, overcoming cerebral palsy himself to draw and write, collect model trains, and inspire others with humor and self-deprecation. The third subset I call the innocent, fictional and real children and young women, for Cornell held the promise of wonder, curiosity, and blossoming as explorers of their interior and uh, exterior worlds. Cornell's second major pantheon of collected people reflects his need to understand his creativity and to identify and gather a cohort for himself. His diaries map this quest through changes in mood, energy, and thinking, and also comment on the experiences of other creative people. Biographies, autobiographies, and diaries dominate his library, as if reading would somehow provide Cornell with an intimate uh, access to insight, reassurance, and solace through kinship, and possibly even metaphorical mentorship. The majority of the figures he turned to were historical rather than living, and I have to say that many resembled the romantic individualistic artist with a strong hint of the idiosyncratic other, a factor perhaps even in how Cornell came to understand and project his own creativity. So in this particular uh, branch of his creative pantheon, again, we've got three types that I've identified. So top, just look at, at the top two images. First is the prodigy. uh, This is about about the onset of talent at an early age. This dovetailed with Cornell's interest in childhood imagination, yet more directly spoke to the challenges and pressures of the likes of a young Mozart as he learned to direct and perfect his craft. The prodigy's close relative was the artist cut short by death or illness, and the French surrealist poet Raymond Radiguet, who died at the tender age of 20, is a prime example of Cornell's watchfulness over the fragility of life and talent. The second subset is the storm-tossed body and soul. Cornell was fascinated by artists who experienced intense emotions and bursts of productivity and exhibited at the same time the ability to express their feelings in art and in words. Those artists who displayed the power of associative thinking across a wide range of interests also commanded his attention. German composer Robert Schumann in the center is a dramatic example of Cornell's exploration of the troubled creative personality. And finally, the solitary. Cornell was not unique in needing extended periods of private creative time, often mistaken uh, by others as reclusivity but he did regret the loneliness that he imposed on himself in order to be creative. So, pictured at the right is American poet Emily Dickinson, who became his guiding light for the perseverance that creativity requires, and for the ability to offset loneliness through the pursuit of spirituality and reading as the vehicle for armchair voyaging in the imagination. So, We come full cycle to that wonderful image at the beginning, and I'm just going to observe that part of what I have learned from just delving even uh, initially into the world of neuroscience and creativity is that knowing the world can lead to self-discovery and that knowing oneself can influence the world. The complexities of creativity, cognition, and Cornell's work do share a measure of alchemy, that seemingly magical process of combination and transformation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.